Um, I wanted to show you guys my notes. I've learned how to use an iPad. And this method has been approved by Dana Persley. She said, hey, that's the way I would use an iPad, to write things out and then just to put them on there. Now, I don't get to save the file. Uh, I haven't learned how to do that yet. Um, but that's part of it, right? So I really do know how to use it. It's just this week I didn't have time to tie my nose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then save it on my Google Drive. Hey, because you can't screen capture it. But I can take a picture, and I don't know how to upload it, but I can screen capture the picture. So there's like 800 files instead of one. Man, I'm, I'm getting tech savvy up here. You guys are helping me out. I'm kidding, Isaiah. I really do know how to use it. He's like, that guy needs beat up right there. Okay. So in Galatians chapter 2, um, last week we studied, and we looked at the fact that there was this issue of these Judaizers. And these Judaizers, basically, what I want to tell you about them is they believed in Jesus. But they believed in order to be saved, you couldn't just believe in Jesus and what he said and did and, and the sacrifice that he was for man to deal with sin. You also had to believe... You also had to be circumcised outwardly. You had to have the ritual of circumcision done. Well, this is not good news, by the way, because for the Galatians and the people that are in places that are not Jewish, this is not a custom of theirs. And so in their minds, to be saved, not only do I have to believe in Jesus as my Savior, but I also have to do this list of requirements. And if you follow one thing on the list of requirements in the law— and you don't follow them all, you've failed to fulfill the law. And so even if you are to do some of the things in the Ten Commandments, or some of the things in the Sermon on the Mount, in all reality, you've still failed, you still need a Savior. The law was never meant to save you, it was only meant to tell you and to show you. Uh, Galatians actually talks about it in later chapters, that it's a school marm. It's a teacher that comes alongside and shows you what you need to learn. And the thing that we need to learn is that we cannot do anything in our own power to save ourselves, even following the Old Testament. And so Jesus came to save us, not only from ourselves, but from the law, which can only condemn. The speed limit sign on the highway down there says 55 miles an hour. And if it says 55 miles an hour and you go exactly 55 miles an hour, nobody shows up at your door the next day and says, good job. You've delivered yourself from being taken to jail. No, you're supposed to follow the law. There's no reward for that. But if you break it, you will be condemned. You will be, if you're caught, you will be uh, given a ticket at the very least. And so the law doesn't save. It only shows you whether or not you failed. And so Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to get rid of it. So in this last part of the chapter, verse 1 through 10, there were basically three portions of this chapter. And Paul came to deal with this. He, um, it says in verse 1, after 14 years that he went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and he took Titus with him, and he went up by revelation. The Lord led him there and communicated to them that the gospel which he preached among the Gentiles but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. He went up to the apostles. He spoke with them and he told them the gospel he was preaching. So when he went up there, he consults the apostles after there was this big argument about whether or not the Gentiles had to be circumcised as part of them being saved and had to become Jewish. And 
basically, after recalling all of the revelation that God had given them in Acts chapter 10, Acts verse, uh, chapter 11, Peter was, had revealed to him by the Lord that he no longer had to call unclean what God can cleanse. God cleanses the Gentiles not by outward religion, but by faith. And he's going to say that in this chapter, that the just, those who are just in the sight of God, shall live by faith. So he has a private consultation with those who are leaders in the church, Peter, James, and some others. But in verse 3 through 5, it says, Not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, someone who had received the gospel, he hadn't even been compelled while he was with those other Jewish believers to be circumcised according to what they taught. They were not teaching that. So he's saying, these Judaizers, where do you get your authority to say you have to be circumcised or to follow the law as well as part of your salvation? But then it says in verse 4, And this occurred because of false brethren who secretly brought in some teaching. They came in by stealth to spy out our freedoms, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us back into bondage. And so I want to turn with you, because I don't think I went over this last week, to Matthew chapter 15. Because Jesus dealt specifically with these types of people, the Pharisees, uh, the, the legalistic Jewish leaders at the time. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, it says that the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying... So they're questioning Jesus, they're examining him. In those days when you would bring a sacrifice to Jerusalem in order to uh, provide that sacrifice for your family or to give of something that God had brought as an increase, you would bring an animal. And part of that is they would inspect that animal because you could not give a blind animal, a lame animal. God wanted them to give their best. And so when they would give this animal, there would be people that would inspect it to see if it was right or not. And the Pharisees always found something wrong with it, so they could just so happen to sell them one of their spotless sheep. And so they would always be finding a way to kind of cheat people. And in the same way they're doing it here, he says, you know, they're inspecting Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist said. And so they're inspecting Jesus, and the way they do that is they're not looking for blemishes in his physical character. They're looking for blemishes in his spiritual character. Uh, little do they know that they, they're blind spiritually themselves. And so he says to them, or they ask him in verse 2, Why do your disciples transgress or purposely break the tradition of the elders? They don't ask him, why do they break the Old Testament law, they ask him, why do they break the traditions? Now, traditions run deep, right? Traditions are those things that we believe that are intrinsic to maybe our family, our lineage, uh, the country we come from, uh, the religious background we might have. And so everybody has those built in, whether you even realize it or not. We are a very religious people are. Um, and so he says, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, meaning themselves, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread? Now, is he asking, why don't, why don't you use Germex before you eat your lunch? Is he asking, why don't they wash their hands? Like, that's gross? No. 
He's not asking that. He's asking them why they don't wash their hands according to the traditions. And in Jewish culture, there was this group of people that had this tradition come up with how you're to wash your hands. And they would have someone pour water, and they would start like this. They would pour the water on the hands. They would scrub them with whatever they scrubbed them with, and then they would let the water drip off their elbows. So then they would have them dried off like you're going into surgery, and then they would have them wash them again so that the water would drip off the fingers. And so it's this outward, you know, this, this ritual to make sure the hands are exactly clean. And when they would get done, they would dry them off. And some of the more strict traditions would actually do it between every course. So you could see that this is kind of a burden. It's like, I just want to eat my Big Mac and I, I got to wash in between the, the Big Mac and the fries. You know, and so they're saying, why do they break the traditions? And Jesus answered in verse 3 and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? See, sometimes people get so worked up about breaking tradition. And what Jesus said is, you guys break the commandments of God, which are more important, whether you know that or not, than your tradition. You break God's commandments in order to do your tradition. That's kind of interesting, right? So he goes on to say, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, meaning that they don't honor them, let him be put to death. But you say, this is your translation, Pharisees and Judaizers, but you say, whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his mother or father. Thus, you have made the commandment of God of no effect because of your tradition. He calls them hypocrites. So we're a little disconnected from this cultural thing, but what they were doing was the very religious people, they would, see, they would have money, they would be doing their jobs, they would, however they got money as a, as a family, and then say that you're a son or you're a daughter and your parents come to you and they say, hey, uh, we're kind of down on our luck. Uh, your dad lost his job. Uh, we can't pay our bills. We need to borrow some money. Well, the very religious person doing the very religious, not the godly thing, would say, you know what? I've actually already told the Lord that my whole bank account is his. And so it's kind of, the word was Corbin, meaning a gift to God. Therefore, I can't honor you or take care of you because this is all the Lord's. I got to use it for him. It's a very spiritual answer, but an, a very ungodly answer. Basically, I can't help you with your practical need because this is all God's money and it's set apart for his work. Now, God's work is to minister to orphans and widows and to take care of those who are in need before it's ever for something we would call more spiritual. There's nothing more pure and undefiled before God than this, ministering to widows and orphans in their time of need. And to honor our mother and father, we can provide for their practical needs. Why not? They've provided for ours our whole life. And so he says, why do you break the commandment of God in order that you may keep with your tradition? And of course, this would be kind of a, a big dig. It's like an ice pick to their spiritual boldness and their, their puffed upness that's a word. And so, you know, he's basically trying to deflate their pride. And always, God is trying to deflate our pride. So he says, hypocrites. What is a hypocrite? It means someone who wears a mask, someone who 
puts on a mask, but really inwardly there's something else in order to prove to others that there's something good. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with what they say, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Or you could say it this way, in, they worship me to no avail because they teach as doctrines, God's word, they teach, instead of that, they teach the traditions of men. And so woe unto those who have traditions or things that they believe that are not actually part of God's truth. So, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, talking about how they wash their hands, but it's what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Because in all reality, it proves what's in his heart. You know, I was one of those that said, hey, I didn't really mean what I said. But what God says in his word is, what comes out of your mouth, the fruit of your lips, proves what your roots are based upon. So if there's filthiness coming out, that just proves you have a filthy heart. And so God says, I, I want to change the heart, and then the outward will change as a result of that. It'll be fruit. And so, but he answered and said, then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when you heard this, when they heard this saying? <laughs> he knew that. He was aware of that. He had counted the cost. He knew that this was going to be the group that ultimately wanted to kill him. And many of them wanted to kill him because he said some pretty harsh things to them. But he said them to them because he was trying to, to open their eyes to the truth. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both of them will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, explain this to us. Many times we come to things in the word of God and we go, I don't get it. Peter did the right thing here. He said, I don't get it. You know, I've heard somebody say this week and I had heard it many times before. The only question that's the wrong question is the question not asked. You know, if you've got a question, you need to ask it, especially of the Lord who wants to answer it. Jesus said, are you also without understanding? Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? We eat food and our bodies kind of take care of it and they take the nutrients out of it. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders or hatred, adulteries or lust, fornications, thefts, false witness or lying, blasphemies, these are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. And so it, it's, it's beautiful because he's saying, you guys are so concerned about the outside of the vessel, and yet God desires to clean the inside. That's what he's in the business of doing. So my point in saying that is that Jesus taught that man's tradition is not more important than God's word. The Holy Spirit confirmed it. And then the leaders in Jerusalem approved and accepted it in Acts chapter 15. So, but it's hard to break tradition, right? It's, it's not just something that we know we're even doing. It's something that becomes part of what we do. So once you've tasted of the grace of God, Paul's saying, don't go back. It'll be the same as it was when you left it. So I find this interesting because in the first part of the chapter, Paul deals with 
these Pharisees, these people who are outside the faith, really. Because to have Jesus as your Savior and then try to add something to it to make it a little better, to be more saved, is blasphemy. It's saying, hey, grace of God, that's good, but I'm going to add to it my works. And what Jesus, or what Paul is saying here to them is that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. You're not saved if you try to add to it. But then he has to deal with someone else. This other person he has to deal with, because last week was the tradition versus the word of God. But this week is the word of God versus what man thinks about you. And so that we may be able to go, hey, I'm not like a Pharisee, but you might struggle with this more. The fear of man versus the word of God. What God has said is right. So verse 11 says, When Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Paul, being an apostle, not one that had walked with Jesus physically, but who had been impacted by him after his resurrection, approaches Peter and it says he withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. He was not blameless. He had transgressed in a way. Verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. So this is why Paul approached Peter and had a strong um, rebuke for him. He, he corrected him. He said, it says here, for this reason, before certain men came from James, Jewish people, he would eat with the Gentiles. Peter recognized that God had a love for the Gentiles. He wanted to give them the same salvation that the Jews had received. And so he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, these Jewish people from Jerusalem, he withdrew. He separated himself, fearing. He has fear. Peter has fear. Even though he's kind of the fearless apostle, he'll say and do whatever. You know, this is the same apostle that whacked the ear off the guy that tried to arrest Jesus. But he's got some fear here. He says he withdrew and separated himself fearing those who were of the circumcision. Again, these Judaizers, these, this group of believers that say you've got to be circumcised to be saved. When they come around, all of a sudden, Peter has this fear of man that causes him to back away, to shy away from what he knows to be true. Peter knows specifically that God has a plan for the Gentiles and that he is cleansing them by faith. It's not about outward works. And yet when these Friends of his, probably people he grew up with, show back up in town where he's at in Antioch, which is the center of the, the Christian world at the time. They come from James, the half-brother of Jesus, and, and Peter kind of backs away. This bold fisherman who knows the truth, has been set free by it, walked with Jesus for three years, has had the Lord reveal new truths to him about the Gentiles. When these guys show up, all of a sudden he's a wet noodle. All of a sudden, he's got no backbone. He's like, you know what? I'm not going to eat with those guys because my buddies that I grew up with and went to high school with are around. I find this interesting because I remember being in high school and I remember having certain friends. I was, with, I was in band. I was a band geek. Not only that, but I played the tuba. So I was not cool except in our little group of friends. I was the man, you know. That guy's short, and he's getting shorter because he's carrying that 40-pound thing around the field. You know, there's no football players going, hey, good job. You know, they're just carrying around some pads. But my point is, is that I had a group of friends in the band group, and then I had a group of friends that were not in the band group. We'll call them sportsers. 
And so they were playing sports and we were playing in band. Well, we didn't like meet in the middle. There was no like co-mingling with that. There was a division in between. Well, I would hang out with the band people until the sportsers were around and then I'm hanging out with them and I don't even know them, right? Because I fear their, I fear their opinion. Even though I spent most of my waking hours with the band people. At 7.20 in the morning, we're going out for band practice. And so there's these divisions in culture. There's these groups of friends we have. And if one group of friends is around, probably we're going to default the other ones, right? Maybe you're not like that. I was, unfortunately. But that's like that in the church, too. And so God has divided the middle wall of separation. There's no veil anymore in the temple. When Jesus said, it is finished, it got dark, and all of a sudden the veil was rent from the top to the bottom. And of course, the Jews sewed it back up because they were like, no, we're the only ones that can send our high priest in. But God was saying, anybody can come in by faith through Jesus now. There's no Jew, there's no Gentile. All of us are one by faith under Jesus Christ. And so... We don't have that opportunity anymore. And Peter, being a leader in the church, he is greatly erring. Erring, yeah. He's making a mistake. And so he says this. It says that Paul approached him and talked to him about it. In verse 13, And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Again, to be a hypocrite and to put on a mask instead of just being who you are. And so here it is, Peter has shied away from hanging out with the Gentiles. And then in verse 13, it says this, that the rest of the Jews also, following Peter's example, they did the same thing. Even Barnabas, who had been with Paul on the missionary journeys, they spent most of their time talking to Gentiles. And Barnabas kind of started shying away too because of Peter's example. So Paul withstood Peter, he corrected him strongly for two reasons. Number one, Peter was being a hypocrite. He was backing away from the truth of the gospel. He was dying on the hill because the truth of the gospel was at stake. Peter had been leading Gentiles to the Lord and then he wouldn't sit with them anymore. What does that say about the Lord? If people don't know the Lord very well, they're looking at Peter going, God loves us, but not that much. Not really. He wants to save us, but he doesn't want to be with us. That's the biggest, coolest thing about God is he he gives us his presence in our daily lives. So Peter was kind of against that in his actions, even though he said he believed that God was for both Jew and Gentile. But then, number two, because of his influence on other believers. Paul was strong with Peter to his face, but later we'll see he was strong with Peter in front of everybody else because that thing had been taking place in front of everybody else. So it called for a public um, discipline. In Matthew chapter 18, that's what it says. um, In verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's the first step. But if he hears you, you have gained your brother, right? So it's out of love. You're not doing it so that he'll turn away. You're doing it so he'll repent. But if he will not hear, take with you one or more witnesses by that, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Let him be to you like an unsaved person. Put him outside of the fellowship. So Paul's going through this 
process in Galatians, he approaches Peter uh, one-on-one to his face. But then because of the hypocrisy had been like a cancer and spread to other believers, he approaches him in front of other people. Verse 14 of Galatians 2. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? He says, Peter, you live... Even though you're a Jew, you've been saved by Jesus, you live in the manner of Gentiles now, and not as a Jewish person, why do you compel others to live as Jews? Hypocrisy, right? Saying one thing and doing another. Well, do as I say, not as I do. Peter could have easily said that, right? But no one will follow somebody that does that. I won't. It causes me to rebel against that person. Hey, you don't really live out what you say you believe. Verse 15, we who are Jews by nature, Paul says, He's talking about him and Peter being those born of Israel, being descendants of Abraham, followers of Judaism. He says, we who are Jews by nature, not sinners of the Gentiles, meaning heathens or uh, non-believers, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even though we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. What is justified? That, that word came up in the book of Romans, and now here it is in the book of Galatians. What does justified by even mean? Justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous because of Jesus Christ. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. It's an act of God, not a process. When we believe by faith in Jesus, it's an act of God. He imputes our righteous, excuse me, Jesus' righteousness into our account that was bankrupt. And then he exchanges that for our filthiness and our sinfulness. So when we are justified, it is by faith. It happens at the time that we say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Savior. I want you to deliver me from my sinful nature. And at that point, you are justified. You are made just as if you had never sinned. Done. It's finished. It's not a process. It's something that's done. Positionally, you are sealed for heaven. Practically, There's stuff that still needs to be worked out. Practically, there's still fleshliness in your life. There's still habits. There's still um, wrong ideas about Jesus. There's still um, things that God wants to purge from your life that are poisonous to you. But at the time of salvation, you're justified in the sight of God. He looks down upon you. He doesn't see you anymore. He sees Jesus because you are hidden in Christ. You are clothed in his righteousness. But there's still junk that needs to be removed, right? He's purifying his bride by his word. So Peter, who is known in the Catholic Church to be the first pope, they call him infallible. But if I read the book of Galatians, I see he still had some stuff to be worked out. He's not perfect. He... You see him in stained glass, and that's a neat picture, and it's beautiful, but he's, he's not there yet. Now, he is glorified now in Christ. He's in the presence of God, 
You know, he's gone before us, uh, but in all reality, while he was still here, God was still trying to work out his purposes. Uh, remember in uh, Acts chapter 10 where God approached him, I talked about it last week, God sent down this big, huge feast and said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And there was all these unclean foods. And, and so Peter hears this and in his perfection, he says, not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean since birth. Why would I do it now? So even after Jesus has been resurrected, spoken to him, poured out the Holy Spirit on the church, Paul, or Peter still got an issue with saying, not so, Lord, which he did while he, Jesus was here. And so anyway, Peter's still trying to work out some things, and he's had all this truth revealed to him, but he's still got some traditions that are deeply ingrained in his head. Let me ask you, maybe we don't struggle with the Jew-Gentile thing right? Most of us are like, this is kind of foreign to me. I, I see that Jesus died for everyone, and I'm not worried about whether they're a Jew or a Gentile. So let me ask you, ask the Lord to search your heart. What are the things that you have traditionally believed that are not actually in the Word of God that have caused you to not fellowship with certain people? I, the other night, I spent a bunch of time, this is going to sound weird, but I went through my friends list on Facebook and I was like, hey, who could I invite to church? Who are people that really are unreached for the gospel that are on my Facebook list? You know what I noticed? There's not a lot of them. And it's not because I've been going gung-ho for Jesus. It's because many times I see their posts and all this stuff, and I just I take them off my friends list because I don't want to see it anymore. Now, there are things that I don't need to see that will stumble me, and so I need to not have them before my eyes. But... I can still be friends with them. I can still converse with them. They need to see what Jesus has done in my life. And so I've chosen to not sit at their table, to not sit with them, right? And I, 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 I'm embarrassed to say that. But in all reality, we do that without even... I didn't even realize I was doing it. And I, didn't, I don't think that I'm better than them, although I think there are times where I, I might. And so God's trying to get that junk out of there and go, hey... I came for sinners, not for the righteous. Jesus came to save sinners. Paul said, Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am chief. I'm the chief of all sinners. He started by saying, I'm the least of all apostles. But as he grew in Christ and as he learned about the grace of God and all that God had done for him, by the end of his walk, what he said about himself was not, I'm the least of all apostles. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. The fact that God's even allowed me to be a part of his kingdom why? And so God has humbled Paul, and he's trying to humble Peter. Why aren't you sitting with these guys? Jesus died for them. His blood was poured out for their salvation. Love on them. Spend time with them. Listen to their crude jokes and give them grace. You know, don't go, oh, I can't believe you said that. I'm done with you. But bear with them, because Jesus is not finished with them yet, just like you. So in verse 16, he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. We are surrounded by people that if you ask them, if, Jesus, if they would spend time, eternity in heaven, they would say this, I'm a pretty good guy. God will accept me. And that's a lie. Because God will not accept us based on our works, 
by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But, verse 17, if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. When we try to earn God's favor, when we try to prove that we're righteous by our works, what we're essentially saying to God is, okay, here's God's grace presented to me and I've received it as a gift. And then we think in our minds, I'm going to move that over to the side and I'm going to pile my works next to it. But there can be no duality on the throne. There can't be anything there can only be one person on the throne. So if I divide the throne and I put my works and then I put Jesus here, Jesus will not take half a throne. And so when we say, well, Jesus is good, but I got to add this thing to it, we're saying, okay, Jesus, you sit over here. <laughs> Here's my stuff. We're taking him off the throne. We're not dividing it. He will not have a divided throne. And so that's what Peter's saying here. He says, or Paul's saying here, I do not set aside the grace of God. I don't. And when you add your works to the salvation that God's provided, you're taking God's gift and saying it's not good enough. I need to add something to it. Plain and simple. And so Paul had to say this to Peter. Can you imagine? Somebody you really care about. Somebody might, he might even look up to. All of a sudden, he's going, wow, I really was impressed with Peter, but what in the world? All of a sudden, he's going, I don't even know if the guy's saved. Now, Peter is a saved man. He knows Jesus, but God's trying to work out some stuff. And so Paul, in love, approaches Peter. He's not yelling at him. He's humbly saying, hey, look, man, I think you're making a mistake. You're causing people to stumble. Barnabas is no longer, he, he won't sit with people either, just like you. And all the people that you follow you are going to... So in 2 Timothy, it says this. If I can find it. I didn't mark my page. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Remember, the fight here in the first part of chapter 2 is tradition versus the word of God. And in the second part of chapter 2, the fight is between the fear of man... And the word of God, again, the word of God should be first. So in First Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter three, verse sixteen, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Completeness means wholeness. It means maturity. Each one of us, whether we realize it or not, we're immature. We, we got things that we don't realize are wrong ideas. Peter was the same way. If Peter had wrong ideas about the gospel, I wonder how many of us do and we don't realize it. 
How well do you receive correction? How much are you willing to correct others who are in error? I think as a culture, we are horrible at receiving correction. We don't do it. We get offended if somebody says the slightest thing against us. Even the people who care about us, when they approach us and they say, hey, they don't approach us because they fear they might lose us as friends. So they've got the fear of man, and we do too because we're afraid we'll lose a friend. But Proverbs says, the fear of man is a snare, it's a trap. But those who fear the Lord will be safe. Paul knows that Peter's in error. He loves the Lord, and he cares about, he fears the Lord more than he does. He fears the opinion of Peter, and so he's willing to go and say, hey, Peter, you've got something that's in in your spiritual life that's cancer. I think you need to go see a specialist. I think you need to see the Lord and let him remove that thing. And so Peter has two options, and it doesn't say here how he responded, but if you read the book of 1 and 2 Peter, it shows that Peter writes again, and it shows that he mentions him, he quotes him. He basically says, hey, I'm cool with Paul. Some of the things he writes are hard to understand, but Paul's also a believer. So you can see that there was probably some repentance and there was some fruit from that correction. So anyway, I just want to close by saying uh, we need to be careful that the traditions that we believe don't overcome what the Word of God says. And then number two, we need to be careful that we fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs says. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We need to fear the Lord more than we do the people around us. Whether we respect them or not, we need to have such an intimate relationship with Jesus that we fear his opinion and his glory and his honor more than we fear anyone else. That includes our children. That includes our spouses. You know, I, I told my wife when we first started dating, I said, I, I love you, but I love Jesus more. And young guys, if you can find a woman who loves Jesus more than she loves you, you're going to have way better of a wife than you will ever have any other way. It's the most important. Because as spouses, we need to fear the Lord more than we fear our spouse. Because God wants to use spouses even to rub off the rough edges and get rid of the junk, you know, in love. And so may God have his perfect work in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us enough, Hebrews says, that you love us enough to correct us because every parent who loves their children corrects their children out of love. And so, Lord, we thank you that we get to be your children, that you've adopted us by the blood of Jesus to be heirs in your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for the truth that you've given us to present to a lost and a dying world. We thank you for shining your light on our hearts, even though we still live in darkness in this evil age. Lord, we need you to guide us by your Spirit into all truth. First Peter actually writes that, uh, that you've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness in the person and in the word of Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to know it more than we know what our friends think. No, more than we know what our families have built up as traditions, more than we even have traditions here. I'm sure there are some that I've already snuck in. Lord, help us to be um, faithful, to live in daily relationship with you and cause that to change the way we think about our neighbors. Help us to 
to, to love them like you love them. Lord, help us to see those who are in error, who don't believe the truth of the gospel, and give us a love for them that gives us a desire to, to talk about it with them and not to shy away because we fear that they might not talk to us anymore. Lord, where there is fear, there can be no faith. So Lord, remove the fear from our lives, the fear of man, the fear of opinions, the fear of whatever it might be, whatever all of us in here have fears of. Lord, um, you've not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind so that we can overcome. So Lord, make us overcomers as we trust and as we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.